The information discussed in this episode is intended as general information only. It is not intended for one-on-one medical advice, and you should always consult your healthcare practitioner before making any changes. And if you like the content discussed in this episode, please go leave a review so that others can benefit from it as well. I am a woman on a mission that is dedicated to teaching you just how powerful your body was built to be. I like to do that by bringing you the latest science, the greatest thought leaders, and applicable steps that help you tap into your own internal healing power. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power back and help you believe in yourself again. My name is Dr. Mindy Pels, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Welcome to the Resetter Podcast. This is Jessica, sidekick and co-host with Dr. Mindy, and this is episode 48, and we are here with an incredible guest today, Zach Bitter. For those of you that are fitness enthusiasts, you are going to love today's episode. Zach is an endurance athlete and a coach who has broken two world records. In August of 2019, he captured the 100-mile world record finishing 100 miles in 11 hours and 19 minutes. And in today's podcast, we are going to, of course, discuss how incredible it is to break two world records and and how the heck you decide you want to do a 100-mile race. But we're also going to discuss the best diet for your fitness level, biohacking to improve performance, how to recover well, ways to train for your fitness goals. We've had so many questions from you guys over the years on training and fitness and how you do nutrition differently for it and what you should be eating. Should you be carb loading? Should you go keto? Which is why we're excited to bring Zach on so that we could answer many of those questions. And if you're new to our podcast, welcome. Don't let the fact that we are discussing ultra marathons and a 100-mile race deter you from listening as Dr. Mindy and myself are not training for a 100-mile run, nor are we ultra marathoners, but lots of great wisdom in this episode's in this episode in regards to exercise and nutrition in general. So welcome. If you're listening to this on Apple or Spotify, make sure to click the subscribe button so you automatically get notified of new episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review so that others can see the benefit of these episodes as well. Let me kind of give you just a little bit of a background of just our podcast and our community. So we are a group of people that I've got close to three, 400,000 across all our platforms that one of the things we do is we fast together. Mm. So we do once a week or once a month, we do a five-day fast of all different types. And we do it as a group once a month. And so one of the big questions that has come up is around fasting and exercise, high carb and exercise, low carb and exercise. And so these are things that we have continually talked about. And one of the reasons I want to bring you on is to talk about nutrition and just sports performance in general. But when Drew told me that what he was doing with that 100 miler... My first thought, honestly, was like, oh my God, that's going to kill your body. Like, why are you doing that? And when, I, when we dove deeper into it, he said, oh, you've got to talk to Zach Bitters because Zach Bitters, it, it, he helped me through the whole nutritional piece of this. So hence the reason we are here right now chatting with you because I really want to hear more of your mindset and how you approach these this like extreme long distance type 
activities and how you look at it from a nutritional aspect and how do you do it from an injury prevention aspect. And we haven't done a lot on my podcast around different types of exercise and how to tap in to accelerating human performance through just different strategies around HIIT training, strength training, endurance training. This is what I want to dive into. Yeah, I know those are all great topics. I think we can get into the weeds a bit with some of them and kind of chat about what I've done and what I've helped other folks do within kind of the context of kind of the low carb type of a strategy. And I guess like generally speaking, when when just to kind of go to like endurance training in general, like I like to kind of frame things in a way that is going to be like kind of like relate the goals no matter what. And the one thing that I find really interesting with some of the ultra marathon type stuff, especially since it just is you know longer efforts out there, is like the goal for basically anybody, regardless what their diet is going to be on race day, is to defend muscle glycogen. So mm-hmm. you can get to events that are really long, in which case muscle glycogen almost becomes a bit less of a factor, especially if you're you're really good at burning fat. You know, most folks who are training specifically for a race that's that long probably will be relatively good at burning fat, regardless of their diet, just because you know, you're running long distances. A lot of people, even on moderate to high carbohydrate diets are sometimes doing longer runs without a lot of fuel before and during and things like that, just to kind of train their body that way. But ultimately you're trying to get yourself in a position to the, where at the end of the event, you have intact enough glycogen stores that you feel strong and you can finish strong. Okay. So there's like, traditionally with endurance, it's been kind of moderate to high carb has been the message. And And I think some of that is relative just to some of the more standard, more studied distances that tend to be in what we can talk about after, if you want, kind of these gray area intensities that just make things a little more complicated or a little less natural, I guess, to the human, the human experiment more or less. And either way, like when you just try to extrapolate that forward in ultra marathon, where we know a lot less about from a strict kind of research standpoint, you find a situation where a lot of times people are battling this this need essentially if they're following moderate to high carbohydrate diet to defend that muscle glycogen by eating a lot of that sort of stuff during the race itself. During it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you just get a wide range of experiences with that. I mean, I've had I've worked with folks who like if they have like twenty to twenty five grams of like some sports engineered product, like that's like the peak at what they can tolerate anymore, and they're going to start like having digestive issues and just really struggling. And then there's folks who can seemingly do 60, 90 grams an hour and and just clip right along and then everything in between. So if you're going to follow a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, you certainly need to be getting probably at least 50, but probably closer to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour in these longer single day endurance events. Now, in order to defend muscle glycogen appropriately, within that context, a lot of times we see like, I believe the most recent position paper was like 60% digestive issues or some sort of digestive situation. So if you choose that route, if you fall into the norm, you're basically a coin flips chance of having a day where you don't feel like you're miserable from a digestive standpoint to know everything from like mild stomach discomfort to stopping every like every like half mile and puking or, you know, having to use the bathroom multiple times at the end of the race and things like that. So that's kind of like the traditional approach with it. Then you get folks like myself, other folks in the sport too, like Jeff Browning, Mike McKnight, Jason Schlarb to a degree, starting to experiment of different ways to defend muscle glycogen. And, and one way to do that is to increase your fat oxidation rate to the degree where your body's just not tapping into as much of that muscle glycogen 
from those lower intensity efforts. So like a lot of times with like a hundred mile race, personally, I'm looking at what you'd call like you just underneath your aerobic threshold. So I'm certainly burning a blend of fats and carbohydrates during that, at that intensity, almost regardless of my diet, but I can really, really bring down the number from carbohydrates by manipulating my diet and things like that. So I'm defending my muscle glycogen via increasing my fat metabolization. So it's sparing some of that glycogen stuff. So I'm just going to deplete less of it at a similar intensity as someone who's following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. So where it gets a little nuanced, I think is like a lot of times I think people want to think all carbs or no carbs. And really there's, I think a lot of middle ground with that in the context of performance specifically, where I don't necessarily want to fat adapt myself to the point where I am like, I, I kind of like spin it on its head and now all of a sudden can't tolerate any carbohydrate sources during the race. Because even, even in a, a pretty fat adapted state, which I would consider myself in, I think my last uh, fat, peak fat oxidation rate was a 1.56 grams per minute, which for folks who are interested, that's about 50% higher than the, the high range of a lot of the studies done before what we saw in the faster study in 2014. So like I can definitely defend a lot more muscle glycogen with just my day-to-day diet. But when I start putting intensities up to what I can like optimally train myself to, if I put in like a really, really good training block, I'm still going to be dipping into my muscle glycogen to a small degree, but a small degree over the course of an entire day or 12 hours is going to be enough to deplete it. Mm -hmm. So I still need to defend that with small amounts of carbohydrate during the day. If my goal is peak performance it's just much lower. So for me, like the highest I usually take my carbohydrate intake during a race would be maybe like 40 grams per hour, which is going to be underneath even the lowest range of what they would recommend you to do if you're following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. Mm-hmm. And then like, I've kind of got this dual defense system put up essentially where I have improved fat oxidation rates, but I also have small amounts of exogenous carbohydrates coming in, both serving me to defend that muscle glycogen. So since I've lowered my carbohydrate requirement during the race itself, I also lower that risk of any type of digestive issues. So interesting. Yeah. So I think like for me personally, I've done, gosh, I've lost count, but I think I've probably done some of the neighborhood about 70 ultra marathons now. And the majority of them I've done in the context of a high fat, low carb diet. And you know, the I've, I've had stomach issues before. I mean, it's it's almost unavoidable to never have a stomach issue unless I guess you maybe don't eat anything, but then you're kind of compromising your, your up end potential a little bit when some of these longer full day type events, you know, for me, it's like, you know, I'll have stomach issue every once in a while, but it's way below like the 50 to 60%. It's maybe at most one out of every 10 times or something like that at worst. And it's usually not something that completely derails my day. It's like, all right, I lost a little bit of time where I would have maybe been able to run say 15, 20 minutes faster for that hundred mile race versus what I ended up running. Had I not had to stop and, you know, address some of that sort of stuff. But that's kind of the name of the game, I guess, is muscle glycogen defense and how you do it is a little more dependent on the individual and kind of what, what works for you. And then there's just so many other variables you can tie into that too, where, you know, I work with folks who just follow kind of standard traditional dietary stuff and then they get into training and they switch their diet. And for them, it's just a lot easier for them to stick to a high fat, low carb diet. And, you know, they may, they may lose 15 to 20 pounds, which is going to be a huge performance benefit in a sport where you're trying to move your body all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as long as you don't go like too extreme with it and end up compromising what you'd call your power weight ratio, where now you're starting to lose power along with the weight and it's coming out to be a negative return on performance. 
people, you have to try really hard to get down to that in a lot of cases. So most people aren't fighting, fighting that battle, thankfully, but it is worth saying that because there are folks out there who do and, you know, find themselves, you know, losing too much weight and then they, they lose performance on that end of the spectrum too. But yeah. And what, what we see in our resetters is we've got a lot of uh, like, you know, 50 year old athletes that maybe are running a half marathon or they just want to stay in amazing shape. Mm -hmm. And they're still trying to get their mind like wrapped around not doing high carb to like carb load before like a Spartan race or, or something like that. And we get them into, to teach them the ketogenic diet. We teach them variations of fasting and ketosis. And what is hard for people to wrap their head around is the fact that fat may be as good of a fuel source for athletic performance as a carbohydrate is. So are you, would you agree? I mean, that's what I hear you saying is that, yeah, you've got to keep the carb down, keep the fat up, and you're going to have more access to not depleting your glycogen stores. Is that how I'm interpreting what you're saying? Yeah, I think like this is where a lot of the context kind of kind of weaves in to a degree. So if you take like that person you described, someone in kind of their like around age 50, and they have like multiple life focuses, like they want to be healthy, they want to be happy, they want to enjoy their activities, they want, you know, they want everything to click, but you know, they're they're not trying to make the Olympics. They're not trying to win the race, that sort of thing. That that person, I think like their dietary structure is going to, they're going to have a lot of options and they're probably best off working with what works for them in terms of kind of getting there from, uh, from just like, a from their, their typical nutrition plan. So what can they stick to? What can they make sustainable? When, when we look at just kind of the metabolization of fats versus carbohydrates, the advantage that fats have is it's super stable. So like, you know, even someone who's at the very front of the race, very lean, couldn't afford to lose an ounce, has enough body fat on them to power them through like a, a really long race. They're not going to like deplete that source. What they could deplete is the muscle glycogen. So like with the fat, its advantage is it's basically unexhaustible. The disadvantage of burning sugar, burning carbohydrates is that it's an exhaustible source. So the advantage of a carbohydrate over a fat is it's going to metabolize a little quicker and it's going to require less oxygen to do so. So if you get into these like kind of areas where let's say you're like an elite marathon runner and you're trying to run like a low two hour marathon, that person is going to maybe need to like lean on carbohydrate a little more heavily because the cost of burning fat is a higher Mm. oxygen expense. But the interesting thing and where I think people a lot of times get hung up on is like, if we're looking at like elite marathoners running low two hour marathons versus the average person running a marathon, who's going to probably run it in around four hours when you're looking at kind of like what is going to be the best like diet for someone, there's, there's like kind of almost multiple contexts within everything. So first context is like, well, what, what is the population we're looking at? So we're looking at like front of the pack elite marathoners. We're looking at kind of middle of the pack folks focused on, you know, careers, family, life, health, all this other stuff versus running like it, like eking every last second out, maybe at the expense of their own health and longevity. And for folks and then we're looking also at just like, what is the relative intensity of the, the event itself too? So if you are someone who is going to spend, say, four to five hours finishing a marathon, the relative intensity of a marathon for them is going to be lower than uh, for someone running it in two hours. So then also, uh, interesting. we're looking at almost a different 
we're looking at a different like fuel or like even a, even a different system of training almost or system of racing intensity at that point. So it, I think that's where people oftentimes get confused because, you know, a lot of times I, I, I think we see like people who are kind of just your everyday marathon runners wondering why they're doing quite well on a, on a low carb, high fat diet. And they don't necessarily see the guys in the very front or the women in the very front of the sport, like doing that same thing. Cause for them, it was like a game changer. They may have lost weight. They may feel more energy, may have more consistent energy. They may sleep better. All these things that you see, like anecdotally people report when they have a dietary shift that happens to work for them. So I think like when you're looking at it from that lens at the individual level, it just makes things a lot more clear and a lot easier to kind of make a little bit of make tweaks here and there to kind of put a person in their best position to be successful given their context they have because there's just tons of var- there's just tons of variables that that don't cross over when you go from like a professional runner to someone who's running for health fitness fun and all that other stuff uh you know right down to kind of how they even structure their day much less what they're eating yeah, it's like when people ask us, oh, which fast should I do? We have eight different fasts. I'm like, well, it depends on what you're trying to do. And that's what I, and that was, that's interesting because I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that if you're running, you know, the same distance, the nutrition is going to change depending upon what you want to accomplish within that distance. Do you want to go fast or do you want to just slow and steady? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, exactly. And like to give you a bit of an example of that for like for even if you took me specifically, so now we're making it a little easier to look because we're not comparing two different individuals, we're comparing one individual. If like if I do like a hundred miler on a very flat like track or something like that, you know, I've run, you know, typically like my best performance is eleven hours, nineteen minutes. You know, it's you like my my better performances are usually just under twelve hours, somewhere in that neighborhood. For someone else who's out there who's like more near the middle of the pack, it might take them 24 hours to do that event. So for them, they're doing a 24 hour, whereas I'm doing essentially a 12 hour, even though we're maybe going the same distance. Now, if you take me and just say, okay, Zach, now instead of you just running for 100 miles in that time frame, just see how far you can run in 24 hours. Now I'm more comparable to that person who's running 100 miles in 24 hours, even if I go almost twice as mm. far as them. And, but then when you look at my dietary difference between those, you'll see a shift. So for like, for that hundred miler that's under 12 hours, I'm going to keep a little more carbohydrate around in my training and during my race itself. Now I move up to 24 hours where I bring that intensity down even further because I'm going to be out there twice as long. I need to kind of scale back on how fast I go. Now I open up a much bigger window to even leverage what I, what you'd probably consider like a classic ketogenic diet or even getting close to kind of a no carb type of diet. And I think that's where it gets really interesting when you get that intensity low enough where you can defend muscle glycogen just fine without even consuming any, any, any carbohydrate. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So let's take, let's go back to the 50 year old person who like, cause what the other thing that I think is so interesting right now is we have people in somewhere, you know, between 45 and 60 that are really wanting to push themselves to these extreme levels. And I think people between all the different ways we can track our heart rate and heart rate variability and calories and all that, that we've gotten uh, like this whole new culture of people that want to biohack their performance. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that. So what I have found in just for myself and within our group is that you're, the first step for the average person is you're going to need to move away from this thinking of carb loading. 
mm-hmm. for any kind of performance. That let's use a marathon as an example. And would you agree with that? Yeah, I would even maybe go a step further and say that, like, I think the way that we see carb loading in modern times has been so skewed away from what it was originally intended that it's like no longer even serving serving the individual who's on a moderate or high carbohydrate diet because. Yeah. Really, like the idea of a carb load is so that you start the race with completely full carbohydrate stores, glycogen stores, topped off. Now, you can, like, if you actually taper for a race where you're like kind of reducing the volume and intensity of your training, you probably don't have to change your eating habits at all for your glycogen stores to restock themselves in that time frame. So you're actually restocking them by removing the stimulus that would deplete them versus adding more into it. So now what we've done nowadays is people still taper. They don't train right up to race day, usually like in in the same way they would when they're kind of peaking and doing their hardest weeks in the training cycle. They're scaling back. So then by the time they get to carb load, they're already, they already have like completely topped off muscle glycogen that they don't need to go and eat like a whole nother meal of a thousand calories of like pasta and all that stuff to top that off. They're just going to potentially ruin the race the next day by introducing a huge volume of food that they're not used to eating at that frequency at that timing and stuff like that. And that's probably part of the reason why we see a lot of these digestive issues in some of these longer efforts or even the, the shorter ones. Like I, it's silly to call a marathon shorter, but relative to hundred miles, I guess it technically is. But, <laughs> For the rest of us, it's a long one. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like even within like the general community who's following a more like standard diet or a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, they could probably benefit from relearning what an actual carbo load looks like. But then you get the population like, that you referred to you know, for them, like it's less of an issue altogether because they're just not leaning as heavily on that to begin with. Would they benefit from being in ketosis going into a race or a longer workout? Like do ketones help in athletic performance? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure about the actual like metabolization of the ketone. What we know is that like there is going to be probably a sweet spot for like your fat oxidation rates. So like there's going to be, you want to, like what they would call is kind of like a metabolic flexibility part where you are able to burn high enough amounts of fat that you don't, you're not too dependent on carbohydrates. But then depending on the intensity of the event, you may not want to be so far into ketosis that like you've all of a sudden now found yourself in a position where any type of exogenous carbohydrate source is going to be unusable to you. So it's kind of like removing that tool from the table. Unless you're in a position where like removing that tool from the table is a non-issue for you because you've decided, I feel way better following a strict ketogenic diet. I feel really good and my ketone bodies are super high. I sleep better. I recover better. My training's more consistent. I don't get injured as much. If you find yourself in that position, then, then you, know, you may say, okay, I'm going to sacrifice that tool of an exogenous carbohydrate because so many other things have improved when I take that out mm. as a whole. But I would guess, I would venture to believe that most people, like, assuming they don't get some sort of like digestive issue from it, if they're doing like a marathon and they're trying to eke out like every last second, a little bit of carbohydrate could probably go a long way for somebody who's, who's even someone like myself or someone who's even further pushed towards like a strict ketogenic diet on a, on a day to day basis could still maybe get a little bit of a benefit from that. I think where, where we may see some research come out in the next couple of years that I think will be really interesting is essentially just the timing of all of this. So mm. like one of the mistakes that I've made in the past, some of the folks I've worked with have made in the past is 
you get to like the beginning of a race, like right before you start or the morning of your breakfast, you have a little bit of carbohydrate just as you're thinking, okay, I've got enough fat reserve. I don't really need to eat a lot of that in order to fuel the race. It's already there. I'm going to have a little bit of carbohydrate just to make sure my glycogen stores are topped off going in. And when you do that, what you can do is you can, you can kind of trigger a scenario where your body's going to push a little more towards dipping into those muscle glycogen stores earlier on versus leveraging that overnight fast and avoiding the carbohydrate for breakfast before the race and waiting until you're, say, like 45 to 60 minutes into the event to start bringing in any if you are going to. Because at that That's point, interesting. Yeah, at that point, you've kind of gotten that mm. point where you're burning, you're really churning through fat at a high rate. So an introduction of a small amount of carbohydrate. And I mean, I've worked with folks, it's, it's really small. It's like five to 10 grams or something like that. And like, you know, they can see a little bit of a, a bit of a kind of a, a metabolic flexibility or a dual fuel substrate uh, interplay there. But again, you know, that's going to be dependent on kind of what your goals are too. So um, you know, there's folks out there like, uh, I think the first one I was close to my mind is Charles Washington, who he's, uh, he, he probably fits your demographic perfectly. I think he, I think Charles is probably right around 50, maybe in his upper forties or somewhere around there. And, you know, he runs, he follows a zero carb diet, runs all, all sorts of marathons. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't eat or drink during the marathon. And yeah, he's, uh, he's an interesting guy and, uh, he's improved his times relative to what he's done historically and things like that. So I think he's just a good example of like, you know, when we think of like working with the at the individual level, you got to consider guys like him and folks like him who, for whatever reason, the more the the, the original template just wasn't gonna wasn't gonna work for him. And uh, so it's just bringing the context in. I think is always important. So one of the things that we do a lot and preach a lot is going in and out of different states, different diets. So you like feast famine cycling is what we call it, where you're stimulating autophagy and then you're coming over here and stimulating mTOR to build muscle. So when, when I hear you say that you want to maintain your glycogen levels when you're in, especially these longer races, and then I come over to like the theories of HIT training and I look at something like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Carol bike, that is like all about de- like depleting yeah. your oxygen stores. So is there something, is there a way we can combine those two theories? Like if you go and deplete your oxygen stores and then the next day you turn around and you build them back up, is that going to help you in sports performance if you're going in and out of those states? Yeah, and essentially like even a moderate to high carbohydrate marathon runner is going to going to kind of almost do that by default where like you're going to drive your muscle glycogen down to where it gets really low what you do by that is you leverage your body to or you 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 encourage your body i guess to start burning higher rates of fat because of that absence of glycogen there so when i talk about muscle glycogen defense it's more specific to race day because that's where like performance mm-hmm. kind of becomes the driver there. Whereas on the day-to-day basis, you know, most folks probably aren't walking around with topped off muscle glycogen in most cases, unless they have like a rest day and they eat a, eat a bunch of carbohydrate or something like that, then they maybe do. Or if they are working out at a very low intensity and allowing that to kind of take place over time. So I think, yeah, I think that there's, there's some benefits to doing that. I think there's like you're gonna you're gonna encourage your body to burn more fat in the presence of low muscle glycogen. It's just that's that's maybe not something you'd want to do on a day where you're focusing primarily on performance because you're removing kind of a faster acting fuel source. Muscle glycogen, just in general, 
it doesn't require carbohydrate to resynthesize. Like you can do that through fats and proteins. It's just going to be a little bit of a longer, more multi-step process. So yeah. this is this is where I think it gets really interesting because historically, like if I get in a big training block where my volume intensity is really high, so you know I might be doing 15, 20 hours of training and having like speed workouts or some heavier weight training sessions multiple times a week. In that scenario, if I go no carbohydrate, I will run my glycogen store down because I'm just not going to build. It's not going to build up fast enough with just fats and proteins. So that's when we're in my training where I might come up off of a strict ketogenic diet and reintroduce a little more carbohydrate. And for your listeners' context, that's usually at the highest point of my training, maybe 20% of my dietary intake, and then like 60% would probably be fat, about 20 more percent would be about protein as like an example. And that's going to be enough for me based on my fire, higher fat oxidation rates to kind of stay on top of that enough to execute those workouts. Um, at least that's how it's played out in the field for me. Whereas if I decided to go and pick that most intense workout I do, so maybe I'm going to go to the track and do 12 by 400 meters, which can be a pretty brutal workout. I can go into that workout following a strict ketogenic diet, you know, say 50 grams or lower and run as good of a workout there as I ever have. As long as I had gave myself a few days where I'm not taxing myself at an intense level and giving myself time to kind of build up those muscle glycogen stores through like gluconeogenesis and other pathways. So sometimes it's the, again, we go back to context again, right? So like if I wanted to do that workout, say three times in one week or do that workout in the morning and then do a heavy weight training session in the afternoon and then the next morning get up and, and do, do another workout, that would be a scenario where I, I may not be able to lean on like gluconeogenesis to keep my muscle glycogen in stock. So some well-timed strategic carbohydrate at a relatively low level compared to what you're going to see in, in most scenarios is, is maybe advisable from a performance standpoint. But again, structuring those type of workouts are based, I would actually say are ill-advised for someone who's just focusing on health and stuff like that and not thinking about trying to like, you know, maximize their, their potential performance and that type of stuff. I think when you're starting to block workouts like that, you're trying to peak for a specific event versus you know just being healthy, enjoying life, staying fit and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we have had... I'm curious what you think on uh, protein cycling and if you've done any research on it. Because what we've seen again, just across so many different people, is that when they go into these fasted states... And then they come out of it, out of a fasted state, and they do protein cycling. I had seen some research showing that every two hours, if you, or every three hours, if you have 20 grams of protein, that that throughout a day, that that's the best way to stimulate mTOR and to improve muscle growth is what it was. And that the next day, if they do a, a protein cycling day after several days of depletion, the next day when they go to lift weights or they go to work out, uh, we have a lot of Spartan racers. When they go in Spartan race, their performance is like at a whole nother level. Now, those aren't 100-mile ultra marathons, But what do you think of that as a protein cycling and, and going in and out of these states of deprivation and then building back up? Oh, interesting. So like, are you saying like for, so like one day you would do like a fairly frequent protein feed and then the the following days you would, you would step away from that and maybe yep. do like OMAD or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So I think what, from how I understand it, I'd be interesting to see, I don't know a whole lot about kind of the cycling side of it. The, the What I understand though, in terms of just like protein requirements as a whole, 
Step one, the big mover is going to be making sure you get enough high quality protein, so bioavailable protein. So for me personally, like I focus on the highest bioavailable protein sources, which tend to be like animal product protein sources, dairy sources, and things like that. So getting enough of that, which is going to be somewhat individual to the person's size and their activity level, and that's going to be the big mover for muscle recovery and that sort of thing. Then a step further, it's going to give you, it's going to potentially be a benefit but it's going to be a much smaller step than that first one where you're getting just enough protein in. And that would be like what you described where like every few hours you're, you know, you're taking say 20 to 30 grams of protein. You stimulate that protein muscle synthesis. So like if you, if you had like a really brutal workout, you're trying to recover from it. Uh, it's my understanding that the, one of the best ways to optimize that with protein would be to kind of have that 20 to 30 grams of protein every like three or four hours on, uh, on schedule so that you're, you're tapping that muscle protein synthesis on more frequent intervals versus hitting it once like with that OMAD style. Um, I don't know anything about like what it would be like in the, like, I don't know how much of a carryover effect I guess it is after that first day of doing it. I do know, like, I don't think it's a huge, a huge advantage in terms of, uh, doing the frequent protein versus like an OMAD or a two a day type of thing. But it, 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 in most people, it's going to be a, a small advantage. So I think once you, usually the way I work with folks is like, first, let's focus on making sure you have a dietary pattern that's sustainable to you where you're getting enough protein in. Once we're there, then we can take that next step forward and start trying to space it out at the optimal time that you're going to need to. And then pair that up with the workout days where it's going to be most beneficial. So like uh, mostly around like, peak training phases where you're really putting your body through a lot more kind of stress and breakdown. But I'd have to look into that. It's, it's interesting. I haven't, um, I, I do remember, I think it was, I don't remember with the Mind Pump guys. They've got a, a pretty big podcast out in San Jose and, and they were talking, this is years ago, so I'm not sure if they're still, they've changed their their view on this or not in the rec- in recent years. But I know they had talked about protein cycling in the past where like, you know, some of the research at the time was pointing to like, you can do like some protein sparing days and it actually can leverage a benefit from that, but um, I'd have to I'd have to dig into that stuff a little more. Uh, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll send you the study because it was really interesting. Because the number one complaint we get from people when they're fasting is muscle breakdown. Mm. So I started, and my feeling always was it's temporary. Like, of course, it's breaking down when you're in a fasted state. Your body's in a state of gluconeogenesis. It's gonna. It, there will be some breakdown that happens, but it's what you do afterwards that will determine how you come out of it. Mm-hmm. And then I started diving into protein. And I'm like, okay, well, let's look at protein. How about we have somebody go into these autophagy states where you're keeping protein under 20 grams. And then we put you into a state of mTOR. And I started off giving people just like 150 grams of protein in a day and they could do it OMAD style. Mm -hmm. And then I saw an article that said you can stimulate mTOR more efficiently if you are doing protein every, every couple hours. Well, the minute we shifted people over to that, we really saw, and it was primarily performance. We saw muscle growth because a lot of women that are 50, they don't want to lose a lot of muscle. So, And we really started to see people regain their muscle again. So I'll send you the article and I'd be curious what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I know it's a, it seems to be kind of a, a bit of a debate in terms of kind of protein in general right now, but a lot of the I've been fortunate to talk to guys like Stuart Phillips, Professor Jose Antonio, some of the Don Professor Don Lehman, some of these guys who are kind of at the 
forefront of protein metabolism and that sort of stuff. And the the way they described, I believe it was uh, Don Lehman talks about the you know, protein usage with uh, with even your skeleton and your bone and things like that. Whereas a lot of times, I think people don't necessarily associate protein consumption with bone health and bone density and that sort of thing. And yeah. it very much is so. You know, even when you get into the world that I am, where it's like long distance endurance running, oftentimes people are like they're fearful, probably illogically about. Um, getting too bulky because it's like, you don't want to be carrying around more than you have to if you're running a long ways and that sort of thing. But in reality, if you're doing the type of training required for those type of events, you're not going to get bulky off of eating, you know, enough and even over consuming protein. If anything, you're probably going to lean out because it's just going to be a higher thermogenic effect from protein sources. It's likely going to be more satiating for most people. So, you know, I think, uh, it's it's time to bust the myth for especially for I think women that you know protein should be scary because it's going to make you look yep. big and strong like a power lifter or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I I'll send you the article because the research day because it was really like fascinating. And then to go to our resetters and try this, and we saw people building muscles, really cool. Yeah. What are your thoughts on injuries? Because when I think like a hundred miles, I'm like all I can think is. I'm going to have some massive injuries. And this was my question to Drew when he told me what, he, what you guys did and he did ice baths every, as he, after he went through one loop each time. How can we use nutrition or how can we use biohacking? What can we do? It doesn't matter if we're running 100 miles or we want to do a Spartan race. How do we prevent injuries, especially as we're aging? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think like... I think the big movers here are going to be like in the training itself, working from where you're at. And this is the very, this is more difficult nowadays too with like social media and stuff because you have access to seeing what everyone else is up to, which can be incredibly motivating. I know sometimes if I, if I know I should be ready for a workout and I need to get out there and I'm just being lazy, you know, I can like go on social media, go on the internet and I can see someone, maybe even my next competitor, like really training hard. I was like, okay, now I'm getting out there and I'm going to go after it. So you can use that as an advantage. You have to be careful because you have to always be working from where you're at. I like to call it kind of micro-stressing. Our goal is to do like a micro-stress. So it's going to be enough to get your body to make a physiological change to get stronger and more resilient. And then you can go and micro-stress again, which might be a little bit more than time before because you've adapted. And if you just keep doing that consistently over time, you eventually get to where you want to be from a Mm. training volume and training intensity standpoint. I think a lot of injuries and stuff are just due to people maybe getting overzealous early on because they're excited. They've got this new training plan. They've got this goal. I want to be here at this time frame, And then they just get out the gate a little too fast. The other piece of the puzzle, I think, is definitely nutrition. And we kind of touched on that a little bit with protein, I think. I think everything from bone issues to, you know, like ill, like, like poor recovery times and things are oftentimes, you know, could be associated with the underconsumption of protein alongside training too hard and all that stuff. So having that figured out and then having like a, just a, a dietary pattern that works for you. So, you know, if that happens to be something in the, the low carb, high fat uh, category, then I think that's great. And it's, uh, it's definitely something that is a good tool for you if it, if it works. And I don't, there hasn't been any research that I'm aware of from a recovery standpoint on a ketogenic diet versus a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. Other than like, um, there's a ton of anecdotes around myself included, about when we moved from a high, moderate, high carbohydrate diet to a low carb, high fat diet, there seems to be like less soreness and less stiffness, less like, mm. like, like immob- immobility, I guess is maybe the way to say it. The weird thing, you know, after you run these hundred yeah. milers, it's like 
you get like inflamed and sore and it's hard to even bend your knees, much less do anything with them. Whereas like from my experience and some of the other folks who have stuck with it, they tend to, you know, after a big effort like that, feel like they have less of that, that soreness, less of that immobility and that sort of stuff. So if that turns I can out, see that. yeah, and if that turns out to be the case, then you could make the argument, I suppose, that like that improvement in recovery is going to allow you to train more, which the training more could maybe offset some of the potential deficits from leaning heavier on fat than carbohydrates from a, from a timing standpoint or a speed of metabolization standpoint. Again, that's probably going to be dependent on the intensity and what the goals are from you know, health and fitness to peak performance and all that stuff and unique to the individual. But the other big one, I think, too, is sleep. So you know, for me mm. personally, when I was on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, and then I introduced ultra marathon training on top of it. My sleep started to get really bad. I'd wake up multiple times a night. And then when I left everything else the same in training, but switched to a low carb, high fat approach, my sleep went back to where it had been historically before it went bad. So for me, that was a big game changer personally, just because you know I need to be able to sleep well and recover if I want to keep doing what yeah. I'm doing to make it sustainable. For sure. Yeah. How, long, how often are you in ketosis? Do you try to stay in ketosis all the time? Are you pretty much on the ketogenic diet always? The way I kind of break it down is I'm basically always on a low carbohydrate diet where fat and protein are going to be like substantially higher than carbohydrates. Kind of like I mentioned earlier, there's parts of the training where I might flex up to around 20%, couple days a year maybe if it's just like a really big block of training and I know I'm going to run a calorie deficit just to the volume of training, I might flex up to like 30% for a few days. Um, but that's about the highest it gets. And that's like in peak training. So that's in the context of like, say, 20 hours of training per week. And even when I've done, I did a, a really cool end of one experiment back in 2018 when I was training for a 100 miler. And uh, I was testing my blood ketone levels about three times a day, two to three, periodically spread out. And I was doing it during my highest carbohydrate consumption within my program, which is going to be that kind of 20%, rarely, but sometimes up to 30%. And I was still in ketosis the majority of the time. I think I did, I, I tested for, if I remember, I'd have to go back and look at my notes. I think it was like somewhere between two to three weeks. And within that two to three times, I, I dipped below 0.5 millimoles only like, like two or three times. But most of the time I was up between like one and 2.0 uh, blood ketone levels. And some of those days I even had like 200 to 250 grams of carbohydrate. You know, it context is everything with that too. You know, some of those days I was also burning three times my resting metabolic rate. So it's yeah, like, I was going to say you're <laughs> metabolically fit is what I hear in that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that and, statement. Well, and what, where, what it comes down to too, it's like for me, if I want to stay in ketosis and I'm, I'm going to like work at my desk all day and not work out at all, I probably do need to be down near 50 grams somewhere in that neighborhood. But when you add in that 30 miles of running and some mobility and a little bit of strength work, all of a sudden now I basically accelerated that 24-hour period to be more like 48, 72 hours worth of energy demand on a, in a sedentary state. So, you know, the way the way Dr. Jeff Bollock explained it to me was like someone like myself may need to look at 150 grams of carbohydrate the same way someone who's you know, a little more sedentary, maybe going to the gym a few times a week, but mostly working at a desk would look at like 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrate, just mm. lifestyle variances and things like that. Yeah. So I do have phases yeah. of the year though where I do go pretty strict, like 50 grams or less. And that's typically like off season time or early on in training where I'm focusing on just kind of gradually building lower intensity base and stuff. So there's, there's just less, less energy demand and less intense stuff in the plan.
Yeah, we uh, do. You ever look at Carb Manager? We use that as uh, to track macros. And one of the docs in my office is on the U.S. national rugby team. And so she's been tracking on the keto diet, her macros. And there's a place in that actual app that's, that you can put in your exercise and it will adjust your macros according to your energy output. Have you ever heard of that? No, I've heard of some similar stuff like that though. But it is, it is interesting, like some of these like app tools that you can get now and uh, I mean, even like continuous glucose monitors and stuff like that, where you can really figure out, like, you can answer some questions where I think that it frustrated people, where it's like, well, why can that right. person eat a banana and not seem to have it affect them negatively? Well, when I eat it, I get like this, like, 10 minute burst of energy followed by, like, I need to take a nap type of <laughs> a response. Right. So, um, some of these, like, that type of stuff, I think is cool. And if you can build out over time and really recognize how certain exercises and workouts affect you and what your needs are within them, I think. That's the sweet spot in individual programming. Yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts on exercise variation? Do you feel like like you're running a, these 100 milers? Do you think if you want to achieve something really great with your athletic performance, you need to also add in some sprinting, maybe some yoga? Is that powerful or not necessary? That's one of the biggest, I think, misconceptions sometimes within the sport of ultramarathon or in the sport of endurance in general is that it's always long and slow. You know, there's mm. phases of my training where I'm doing basically all out sprints for 30 to 60 seconds. And there's phases of my training where my main focus is what I would call a short interval, like VO2 max type of a training session where I'm going about as hard as I can for about three minutes. And then I'm taking about a three minute easy recovery jog. And then I'm going to do that again. And I might stack, you know, five, six, reps like that in there. So it's very intense relative to what, what I'm going to be doing on race day. So the way I like to call it is it's a periodized schedule, meaning I'm going to be focusing on different things during different periods of the training plan. I'm always working towards the most specific stuff I'm going to use on race day. So if that happens to be a 100-mile race where the intensity is much lower than, say, like a five-kilometer race, I'm just going to be doing some of those short, fast, harder sessions earlier in the training plan. And then as I move closer to the race, I'm going to start reducing the intensity and raising the volume and just really working on the mechanics and the specificity that I'll use on, on the day of the race. So that's kind of how I look at it from like, you know, the full scale. But I think there's a huge value in that stuff from just durability. Think of just like the intensity I race at is a type of mechanic that is just conducive to getting hurt. It's very one-dimensional. It's very right. overuse. It's like, you know, you, if you just do that every day, all day, you're going to develop imbalances. You're going to have things that come about that are going to negatively impact your longevity and health, in my opinion. And a lot of them come to like a lot of hip, ankle issues, sometimes knee issues, tightness yeah. in those areas. So like mobility and strength, speed work, I help think help balance that stuff out quite a bit. So I always keep those in some capacity in my training. Yeah, you know, my so this was 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago, I played on a tennis scholarship at the University of Kansas. And this is when Serena Williams was just sort of coming out. And it was like my last year playing tennis and everybody was so shocked because she was doing all these box jumps and weightlifting. And like, she was the first person to bring cross training to our sport. Now a uh -huh. totally different sport than a hundred miles. But it was so fascinating because then everything started to shift at that point. Everybody started doing different, going in and out of different training mechanisms. 
So, and I, it makes perfect sense to me for injury prevention to not do the same thing over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. And that carries over into the weight room too. You reminded me that when you said box jumps, because I think sometimes like another classic mistake endurance athletes will do is by the time they get around to getting into the gym, they're, they're going over and they're picking up the five to 10 pound dumbbells and doing high repetition stuff, similar to what they're doing running. They're essentially doubling down on what they were already doing. So like the real move, I think, for endurance athletes is actually to focus on heavier weights, lower reps in most cases, but you know, working within the context of where you're at, because it is a supplementary activity from what you're trying to, to do. So making sure like, you know, heavy is relative, you know, heavy for me is going to be different than someone who's, you know, world-class deadlifters. <laughs> right, so like, right. You know, for me, I like operating within rep ranges of three to 10, um, depending on where I'm at in the season. Focusing on some of those core lifts like squats, deadlifts, box jumps, kettlebell swings, that sort of stuff as a, as a way to kind of keep myself durable, keep like the posterior chain nice and strong um, so I don't become too, too dominant and balanced on other areas of my body that are going to be kind of pushed that way from, from running as much as I do. Yeah, it makes sense. Do you think women and men need to train differently? To a degree, I think there's like... There's a lot of crossover in terms of just like what systems of training are going to benefit you more versus others. And I think that would carry over pretty consistently. But the timing of it, there's probably going to be the biggest difference. So, you know, the big one is, you know, women are working, working in, are figuring in, uh, you know, their, their hormone cycles and things like that. That's going to be different than men. So if you're familiar with Dr. Stacy Sims, uh, she has actually done some pretty cool work on the timing of workouts for women versus men with endurance sport. She's brought to light a lot of the, I guess, the, the misconceptions we've maybe had as to, like her big thing is women are not small men. So <laughs> it's like there's, there's, yeah. a time, there's a time to do intensity stuff and there's maybe a time to do other types of training when you're working in the context of of your cycle if you're a woman. And obviously as men, we don't, we don't have to worry about that. So it can be maybe, a, I guess maybe the way to put it, we can get away with more from a timing standpoint. Mm-hmm. So that's the interesting stuff. And I think uh, if anything, what she's done with that is just put a little bit of an incentive on the, the glaring, the glaring kind of weakness in the research probably for, for women specific athletes. I think yeah. a lot of these studies we lean on are oftentimes not only focused on just elite athletes versus average athletes, but male athletes too, in like probably the relatively long, young, like 18 to 30 year old demographics. So it's like, you know, you know, what about our women? What about our women and men who are middle age and that sort of stuff? It's like, yeah. I think there's a lot of growth in, in those areas for, in the research field and where the nuances and the differences may be. Yeah, we need a lot more studies separating them out. I don't, I don't know if you saw, there was a study that came out this week and it was kind of a sensational headline that said, intermittent fasting is not a tool for weight loss. And when I dove into the study, it was like 116 obese individuals and they were men and women from the age of like 18 to 50. And I'm like, okay, this is not fair to look at how fasting relates to an 18-year-old man compared to a 45-year-old menopausal woman. Like, We need to start to look at the times of life and and the sexes based off of just hormonal changes alone. The 50-year-old man's not going to have necessarily as much testosterone per se as the Mm 18-year-old man. So I do think these nuances are important when we're trying to biohack using nutrition and exercise and things like that, we need to be a little more careful at how we are uh, interpreting the information. Mm-hmm. So, With some of that stuff too, because I've seen some stuff like bone density in that, in that sort of some of the studies too. And I always feel like 
that like maybe the message just needs to be like, you know, like if you feel like you range differently from the study results, like there are like accessible, relatively accessible things you can do to know, like you can go get a DEXA scan that's and, and see for yourself if you really need to know, am I losing bone density or gaining bone density? Am I creating muscle loss in areas I don't want to versus other areas and things like that too. So like, I know not everyone has that. So they maybe have to lean on some of that stuff sometimes, but yeah, I'm, I'm big about like working at the individual level versus the group level with this sort of stuff. Cause it just seems like it's, I don't, I, I don't envy the researchers and the, and the scientists in the community of like nutrition because it's, it is complex and there is only so much we know and have to base stuff off of. So it's like, it's, it's hard to get a message that's good. Well, there is no message that's probably going to be universal. So where yeah. do we, when do we separate the individual from the group? I guess is maybe the big question with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. What now you have a really cool podcast. I went and, and started listening to some of them. I've been, I, you've had some really neat guests on one of my takeaways when I was like looking at your podcast and what you're doing in the world, I was thinking, why is it become this hundred mile or has become like the new fad is the way I see it. Like people are craving to go to these longer distances. Do you, is, have I just not been aware of this trend or do you think that it's more popular than ever? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I think like the 100 mile distance itself, I think is maybe a little more popular as like this big kind of like holy grail of ultra marathon in like North America, partly because like there's ultra marathoning has gone through like several like kind of growth and retracting periods over like the last, I mean, essentially last 100 plus years. So the most recent kind of growth phase kind of it got popularized with like a couple of books and some documentaries and things that really highlighted uh, and the 100 mile event was like kind of like front and center for that so as like more people entered the sport i think they entered it with this mindset of like 100 miles is the end goal that's the one i want to really you know find my way to work towards get there and execute and specifically there's a race called the western states 100 out in california that is gotten really popular and it's like if you try to get in as a first year entrant, you have a lot of two percent chance of getting into the lottery. It's it's, wow. it's it's crazy. So so yeah, I think there's some of that, but there's been just like a draw. I think kind of like to the trails and to ultra marathons in general too. And like you go over to Europe, and there's just a lot more of an emphasis on running a specific route versus a specific distance. So they've got like mm. these really like kind of famous like routes, and they sometimes they come out to be like an odd distance, like 106 miles or something like that. And they're more interested in kind of that versus you're hitting an arbitrary number, I guess. But when you get on the road and that sort of stuff, which is a little bit of a slower growing side of the sport, the trails have definitely grown faster. And in this last kind of phase of ultra running, you get a little more kind of like distance specific, like 100 kilometer, 50 mile, 100 mile. And then you get the timed events, like how far can you run in 12 hours? How far can you run in 24 hours? And, and those go on forever. You get up to like six day, 10 day and all sorts of, all sorts of craziness. So. <laughs> Yeah. Do you think the human body's meant to to continually run that that far? I mean it can. <laughs> can and should is probably the way to look at it, right? The I think yeah. like I think humans that in general are are pretty like mechanically designed to cover long distances at a very slow rate, you know, just by evident by our sweat. Like, you know, we've got assets to us that other you know, other mammals don't in terms of being able to cool and run in a variety of different climates like successfully. So I think it's like we're definitely like set up as if that were like something that we are going to we were needing to be able to do maybe back before we had all the resources we do today. 
But, you know, there's always like, there's always probably a margin of diminishing return with that too. And I think with running where it gets kind of interesting is when you get into like these paces that are between like a really slow effort and a really, really fast effort. So like paces between like all out sprinting and anything from like a brisk walk to a real easy jog is where I think we start have playing some weird physiological games maybe with our body. But then I think a lot of it's going to be like dosage and context too. So, you know, folks who start slow and kind of build themselves up gradually can probably make it a more healthy lifestyle than say somebody who decides to jump in wholesale right out the gate and then does a little too much too soon and finds themselves in compromising their health in the process. I, I, I ran a marathon once and that was the first thought I had when I got done. Now, of course, I didn't train properly and this is like 25 years ago. And I was like, I got done and I'm like, I'm pretty sure the human body wasn't supposed to go, you know, 26.2 miles, let alone 100. But I've been in awe watching this trend of a hundred, you know, people doing these hundred milers, and it's so fascinating listening to you talk. And Drew and I kind of un- unwound what he had done for training, and I thought, God, yeah, no, that makes sense. Like if you get your body in the right, if you set it up right, it can do this. And you know, we see people in Africa that are running hundreds of miles barefoot and you know they're so it, it the body can do it it was it meant to do it i haven't quite figured that figured that piece out yet yeah yeah it's interesting i actually think like marathon training if you look at like a really good marathon training plan that i find to be almost more maybe detrimental or more foreign to like mm. what we're used to than even like maybe i mean 100 miles is a long way to run like i think humans traveled long distances like that, likely over multiple days and at a lot slower rate with no huge incentive to like destroy themselves in the process. But like marathon running kind of fits right into that gray area that I was talking about before where you're like, you're not going slow enough to make it very sustainable, but you're not going fast enough to get like the strength benefits from it, I guess. So you find yourself kind of trying to maximize your potential in this pacing strategy that's not really necessarily useful from like a, I guess an evolutionary standpoint or from a, just like a human, a human species standpoint. And that's where I get curious about just maybe what are the long-term ramifications from that and everything else. Does the pacing change in a hundred miles? I mean, you can like, like usually like this is maybe something that's still relatively debated is that like, is it better to what they call like a negative split where you start, you run like slightly faster as you get closer to the finish line versus a positive split where you kind of go out faster and then running, you're running slower near the end or like an even split where you just try to run very consistent the whole way. Historically, I've had my better races probably running pretty even split, but there's other folks out there that, you know, they, they really love going out a little faster than what they know they can sustain because they're feeling a little more mentally and physically mm. fresh at that point. And then they're essentially like bagging some, bagging some time for the end. But that's, you're, you're playing with fire a little bit going that way. Um, I think it's probably a lot safer bet to to negative or even split versus try to positive split a race like that. Interesting. Interesting. Have you heard of the term intermittent living? No, I don't think so. 
Yeah. So this is a new term that's sort of bubbling up. And it's basically that as humans, we're programmed for comfort right now. We can wake up in the morning, we can get to the refrigerator, we could eat all day if we want it. We could go to our thermostat in our house and make sure our temperature is exactly what we need. We can get we can manipulate light so that when it's dark out, we can always turn on light. Mm-hmm. So there's in this sense of comfort and manipulation, our mitochondria are not forced to grow and to adapt. And so intermittent living is taking these things that move us into discomfort and create like a hormetic effect where it forces those mitochondria to start to have to work more efficiently. It's almost like our mitochondria are, are, are lazy. Mm-hmm. And it's everything from fasting to the ketogenic diet to cold plunges to I interviewed a guy who believes in intermittent hypoxia, where you go into states of holding your breath And then, of course, we have the cold showers and then there's light, like people who believe in circadian rhythm where you should only turn on light once light is outside. So I'm thinking about the 100 miler and I'm like, well, it would be a force, a a way of forcing the body into a, a different type of adaptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you, you probably just highlighted what's so incredible about the human body in general. It's almost like you, you try to outsmart it and it just outsmarts you sometimes. And I think it's like, it, it it knows like, I need to adapt to what's coming at me. But if you don't bring something to it, it's not going to adapt to that. It's actually going to probably deprogram it. It's like, oh, I don't need that. Why would I, why would I keep it around? And I think you see that a lot in strength training too. It's like, it can take you a long time to build up that strength. And then like, you 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 step away from it a while, whether it's an injury or just stopping for whatever reason, and it seems to go away really quick because your body soon forgets and says says no, right. we don't need it. You're not trying it, so so I think that's yeah. that is like exposing your body to a variety of different stimulus. I think is probably going to make you a more well rounded, well more well rounded, durable person in a, in a whole. Yeah, and if you're probably doing 100 miles, it might be time to try 200 miles. Then. <laughs> yeah, that's actually the there's um there's a few 200 mile races or 200 plus mile races in, there the, in the U.S. now. So it's, yeah. it is you know yeah. we we you saturate that like well the funny thing with with ultra where I think ultra marathoning maybe differs a little bit from like the standard endurance distances is you know people who become like really big fanatics of like the marathon they're they're always targeting that same distance. So for them, it's like how do I take that next couple of minutes off? What do I do differently to, to hit that new benchmark? And that's their draw to come back to improve their yeah. pace. Whereas with ultra marathoning, I think there's probably just as much incentive in like, all right, I just did a 50K for the first time. Now I want to do an 80K or a 50 mile. Now I want to do a 100 kilometer race. Now I want to do a 100 miler. And you get enough people in it that get to that 100 mile benchmark. And some of them are going to still be like, have an appetite to see, well, what's next? And then, then you get the 200 milers and the multi-day yeah. stuff. So um, it is kind of an interesting uh, like draw to the sport, I suppose. What, what happens to your mindset? Do you get to a point where your like, mind tells you, I can't go anymore? This is like, do you have mindset tricks you use? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely like probably one of the biggest hurdles to get over with these longer events is that mental side of things. Because... You know, early on in the race, any like seeds of doubt that creep in, you can pretty easily kind of push to the side. But then as you get further into the race, though, they, they tend to be more frequent. Like you start thinking of, you start drifting towards negative thoughts a lot easier. And like you might get past one, but the next one might come up a lot quicker. Whereas in the beginning, like mm-hmm. you might push down that first negative thought at like mile 10 and you don't get another one until mile 25. Whereas like 
the mile 70, you might have a seed of doubt creep in and then, you know, a mile later have another one creep in and stuff like that. So it just gets a little more fatiguing to keep like, you know, pushing that back and trying to focus on staying positive and staying in the present. So, you know, there's a lot of tricks that I've done too, just in training where like when I do my long runs in training, oftentimes I'm just pretending like I'm at that point in the race. So if it's like a 30 mile long run, I pretend I'm at 70 miles and a hundred mile and just visualizing like how I would go through that. And you do that like six, seven, eight times in the kind of final phase of your training. By the time you get to that point in the race itself, you feel like you've done it enough that it's not so foreign to you that you're trying to pull from, pull from experiences from the last hundred miler, which may have been like half a year to a year or longer before. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of stuff. And and the more of you, the more of them you do, the more tricks you kind of pick up that work for you and ways you can kind of recognize like when things are heading the wrong way mentally and of course correct a little better. And that's, I think kind of the fun part about being in the sport as long as I have now, where you kind of, you've you've got enough those experiences that that you can kind of lean on. And so now if, if I have a good race now, I think about like, Oh yeah, I actually used what I learned in that race that went terrible for me in this race. I don't know if I would have had a good race had that not happened. So you start to appreciate even the, some of the, the less desired days that you've had earlier in your career. Yeah. And what about music? Do you listen to music at all? Yeah, I'll do like a little bit. Sometimes it depends. Like some races are like sanctioned and they don't allow it. So then you're just left with your own thoughts. Others are a little more like open with that sort of stuff. So I'll, I'll, I'll usually use it interchangeably. So I don't, what I find is if I try listening to music, like an entire long race like that, by the time I get to like the hard part of the race, I'm just no longer inspired by any of the music. So. Yeah, <laughs> but okay. I, try, I try to like, uh, I bring it in as needed. So if I'm feeling really good, I, I try to turn it off. And if I feel like I need a distraction, then I'll, I'll flip it on for a little bit. What do you listen to? I have just a variety of different stuff for the most part, but like I'll, I'll do like a, quite a bit of just like kind of classic rock for the most part. Something with a little bit of energy behind it. Right. Yeah. Something with a good beat. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, let's finish up with this. I have five like specific questions for you just off of your own personal life. The first one is what, what's your favorite recovery strategy? So like you've done a big, yeah, you've done a big race next day. What's, what's your favorite strategy to recover? Yeah. So one thing I try to do if I can help it is give myself enough flexibility in those next few days to like sleep whenever I can. So sometimes the hard part is you run these 100-mile races and your hormones are so whacked out, adrenaline, mm-hmm. all this other stuff. So you might not even sleep well that next night. You might be pretty restless. So like then if I feel like tired and feel like I can take a nap in the middle of the day, that's like a great way to speed up that recovery if you can afford to, the time to be able to do that. So if I can help it, I try to give myself a little flexibility to be able to, as soon as I feel like taking a nap, just lay down and do that. So I'll stay away from maybe caffeine during some of those days if I, for the most part, just so I don't, you know, try to push through that opportunity. This is the time of time of my recovery where I'll drop the carbs down to next to nothing. And sometimes I'll go zero carb during these those next few days after a big race. Other things I'm trying to think about is just kind of catching up on hydration, electrolytes, that sort of stuff. If I'm able to, I'll start doing some very light movements like easy walking, some stretching, some mobility type stuff. Nothing that would induce any type of training stimulus, but stuff that's just going to kind of get blood flow to the legs, that sort of stuff. I'll do like Epsom salt baths and things like that. To yeah, just they're great. Loosen things up a little bit. And, you know, chances are like the magnesium isn't going to be, 
is going to be uh, welcomed after a long race like that. So those are some of the big ones, I think. What yeah. are ice baths? You had Drew doing ice baths. Yeah, so the ice baths for Drew were more of an intra-race hack because for him, what happened was he had to actually like kind of switch his event last minute with all the COVID stuff that happened. Mm. He was originally going to do it in this like really scenic area along the coast. You know, for, for that, the weather would have been perfect. He would have probably had not to worry about overheating, things like that. But when that kind of got derailed with COVID, he had to pick us like, a, I think it was a five mile loop near where he was living, which offered a lot hotter temperatures. So yeah. he would do a loop and he would jump in that ice bath just to bring his core temperature down. Because what we oh, kind of learned okay. is from cooling, you can cool yourself a lot better from topical cooling than you can from just like drinking cold beverages and stuff like that. So if you can, most people aren't going to have access to a, like an ice tub like Drew did. So they're going to like dump ice water on their head. They might put like ice bandanas around their neck and things like that. But Drew had that set up so that he could just jump in after each lap, bring his core temp back down and head back out and avoid the overheating as much as possible. But for ice baths in general, I think this is a, an interesting topic for athletes because what you're doing a lot of times with ice baths is you're kind of, you're, you're, you're delaying the inflammation. You're delaying that swelling that's going to move in after a big workout. So I think there's a time and place for ice baths in the context of workouts. So one would be like, you just did a big workout, but you have another one soon after. And you mm -hmm. want to kind of like push back that stiffness and that inflammation that you might get from that first workout. So you can go and execute that next one. But when you get to a point in your training where the primary focus becomes recovery, that's where you may want to step away from the ice baths for a little bit so that you can actually let that inflammation, because it's not chronic inflammation, it's actually just it's imperative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you want, you don't necessarily want to like, like shut that down with the ice baths too frequently when you're focusing primarily on recovery. So I'll stay away from them for the most part right after a race. But if you're, for example, I'm doing like a back to back long runs, a pretty prop popular workout with ultra marathon runners where typically it's done on the weekend. You'll do like, you know, for me, a, a, a big one I did last year is 30 miles on Saturday and 30 miles again on Sunday. So in that context, after that 30 miler on Saturday, I might take the ice bath so that I'm pushing off that, that stiffness a little bit for the, until I do that 30 miler on Sunday, then I'm going to have a couple of days where I let it catch up. So then I maybe step away from it a while and focus maybe more like an Epsom salt bath, stretching mobility and that sort of stuff. Awesome. Okay. What's your favorite pre-race meal? Pre-race meal, I'll typically do like the night before. I'll bring a little bit of carbohydrate back the night before since I'm not going to have any like the morning of for the most part. So I'll do, I'll still do like traditional stuff that I do a lot, like a steak, but then I might have like a potato with it or something like that. I try not to get too crazy with fiber just be, on the night before a race, just because it's mm. like, especially undigestible fiber, yeah. potential extra bathroom break that I don't really want yeah. in the middle of a performance and that sort of stuff. So I stay away from some of the non-starchy vegetables that I'd maybe have in my day-to-day -day stuff, like you know, some broccoli, spinach or something like that. But yeah, a lot of pretty basic at that point, meat and potatoes, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Dairy. I love it. Okay, what's your favorite gadget? I just got, I've been using an Aura Ring and I just got a Whoop Band and I've... I know that the more the more you trick out your gadgets, sometimes it really helps increase your motivation. What's your what's your favorite gadget for working out? Yeah, I've been kind of similar to you. I've got a watch right now. It's called a Coros Apex that does a lot of the activity tracking as well as like the GPS functions. So like if I do a run, it'll tell me like where my heart rate was at at all the points, where my pacing was, uh, elevation gain and loss. So I can really tease out like where my effort was at given the context of the environment. 
and all that stuff. And then it tracks like the sleep and all that stuff too. So you can definitely geek out, see a lot of stuff that are interesting. It's like, oh, well, I did that and then my sleep quality went down or I did this and my sleep quality went up. And if you can see trends within that for yourself, you can really learn a lot about your own programming and things like that. But I'm actually going to be doing... Hopefully starting on Monday, I'm going to do a a little N of 1 experiment with a continuous glucose monitor. So if you you ask me in a month, I might have a new gadget that I'm interested in. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, those are fun. I wore one once. They're really, really fun. So... What okay? If if you could, I know you do a lot of like nutritional coaching for athletes. If you could take any professional athlete right now and coach them nutritionally, or just coach them in general to better performance, who would you who would you want to work with? It would definitely, I would definitely be somebody who uh, has struggled with a kind of a conventional approach because that's where I find it interesting. Like I think like folks who kind of take like the, the standard approach. And have success with it, great for them. But like, I'm not as interested from the curiosity standpoint. I'm I'm kind of curious in the person who's like, well, they did everything right according to the research and things like that, but it's yep. not working for them for whatever reason. And try to tease that out. And that's where I have a lot of fun with my own coaching clients too, is figuring out their own fueling plan and stuff like that. Especially on race day, where I think there's some ranges there. But gosh, if I had to pick, I don't know if I anyone really sticks out that's kind of fits that parameter at the moment. I'm sure there's plenty of them, but... The one that the one I want to get the message of the ketogenic lifestyle to is, is Serena Williams, because she keeps, she keeps conking at like during that second, she comes out strong, wins the first set, conks in the second set, and then the third is like a crapshoot on the, on the bigger matches. And I keep thinking, I wonder, I wonder if she's doing the ketogenic diet. Like it almost looks like her fuel source is, is depleted. Now that's a different, it's not an endurance race. It's a start stop, but mm-hmm. still nutrition is powerful. You know, that's actually a good point. I think like the interesting sports are like tennis or like mixed martial arts and some of these like types of wrestling, some of these ones where it's like, you might be, you're not, you're, you're, you're kind of in between like very explosive and like long and slow. Like someone like Serena, she has to be incredibly explosive for every one of those, every one of the, the rat or the bat volleys. Am I saying that right? For, uh, for tennis. Volleys, uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> to get up. Yep. You got it. There you are. <laughs> I'm not as incompetent with, with tennis as I thought, I guess. So, uh, <laughs> volleys, but then she's also got to last, like what some of these matches are multiple hours long. Oh so, yeah. So it's like, it's that perfect blend. And I think that's where it gets really interesting with that because she also has to probably focus on uh, glycogen defense, but she has to do it in a slightly different context than me because I'm going to be trying to stay pretty even pace, whereas she's going right. to be fast, stop, fast, stop. So like, it would be interesting to see, first of all, I think what she's currently doing and then where there would maybe be some areas to possibly address. But Yeah. Yeah, no, I've thought about it a lot every time I watch her. Okay, last question. So if you had like one message for the world that you wish everybody could understand, maybe it's about ultra marathoning, maybe it's just about life in general, what would that message be? Yeah, it's a good question. I think like, because what I a lot of times see is folks do a great job of picking like, okay, this is where I want to be. This is my kind of end goal, which I think is great. But once you kind of have that, I think what people oftentimes miss is this opportunity to pick small wins along that path. So like if I'm training for a hundred miler in four months, that's a great long-term goal. But if I want to really have that be a great experience for me, I need to be picking things that I can count as wins or check marks on the daily basis, on the weekly basis, on the monthly basis, 
So even if I get to that race and not have a great day, I can look back on the experience like, wow, I learned a lot because I learned that when I do this, this happens. You know, if I'm able to like motivate myself to, you know, do this and check that off, it, it accelerates my motivation for the next thing in line. And I think, right. yeah, when people don't put those mini goals in there, then sometimes they, they start their interest starts to wane as they get into like the thick of the schedule as that end goal isn't quite close enough to motivate them anymore. Yeah, oh, I love that. I love that. I think that's good for everybody on every every level. So we're always looking at the end results. So this was awesome, Zach. I I really appreciate you letting me pick your brain. We just nutrition and working out has keeps coming up in our community. And Drew was like, you were the guy that we needed to pick the mind of. So thank you so much for letting us do this. How do people find you? Yeah, yeah. First, thanks for having me on. It's been a blast chatting. It's uh, always fun to hear hear about what you're doing, people you're working with, and what's working for them, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So the the best place to kind of find everything I'm up to is on my website at zachbitter.com. Then you can see like all my social media links, consultations, contact me for coaching, and things like that. But from a social media standpoint, I'm most active on Instagram, which is just at zachbitter. Awesome. And your podcast looks amazing. I st- like I said, I started going through it and I already checked a couple that I can't wait to dive in and listen to deeper. So Oh, cool. No, this that's is great. great. Yeah, and your 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 audience may be interested. I'm gonna be recording a podcast with Dr. Dominic Agostino in a couple of ah. weeks. So it's Human Performance Outliers podcast if folks are interested in checking out any of those episodes. Awesome. I would love to to hear that interview and we'll share it to everybody when it comes out. So that's awesome. That's good to know. Cool. Thank you so much. Great. Uh Uh-huh, Zach. Have a beautiful day. Take care. Okay. So I feel like I got my protein question answered. (laughs) And I don't know if you caught it. I mean, what's so fun about these guys is that they're taking something incredibly athletic and making it when you look at how they hack their ability to perform for a hundred miles or like what Drew was doing. And they're taking like science and mixing it with like this primal desire to go long distances. Yes. There's something really cool about that. Like he's total nerd on one level and this extreme athlete on another level. Did you pick up on that? Yeah. I also like too how much he's like, it's, it's such an individual thing too, right? Like looking at you know, what your age is or what your hormones are or, you know, how well you're sleeping. Like there's so many little tiny differences. And he just seems to be very into like analyzing all those differences in order to hack a better performance. Yeah. Which is a lot of work. <laughs> a, a lot of work. and But it's also the common thread through many of our guests, which is that there's no one right way. You got to look at what you're trying to do. Like I thought that was interesting what he said about the marathon. Well, are you trying to Get, go fast through the marathon or you're just trying to do the marathon. Right. And those two people need different, different nutrition strategies. Right. So that, and that shows up. I mean, this is what we preach is like, there's eight different fasts that we talk about. Uh, how do you know which one to do? Well, it depends on what you're trying to do with your health. And I, we have gotten so customized to the one size fits all. And I love how all these experts are unraveling that for us. Agreed. Yeah. And I like too how he talked about the start to finish of whatever your goal is. So if your goal is to do a marathon, like people get so hyped up on doing the marathon and they like kill themselves because they haven't properly like slowly let themselves in 
And so all those little details of slowly building yourself up until you get to whatever you're trying to achieve, like that all is part of the process and takes commitment and it's very individualized. Yeah, that, I thought that was... I, I go back to how I trained for my marathon 25, 30 years ago. It was horrible. I did... What'd you do? I, I was working my ass off. So I was working 60 hours a week and I would go with a friend and train in the morning before work. I didn't do any nutrition. We did three runs a week. And then on the weekend, we had a long run and we just would up the long run over time. Mm. We weren't weightlifting. We didn't know about nutrition. That's what we did. And as work got more stressful, that we had this training program. So we kept having to get the longer runs, whether we were ready for it or not. So I think the longest run I had done going into it was like 17 miles. And it was painful and horrible. And then two weeks later, I did 26. So I was I was nowhere near ready for 26, but I made myself do it anyways, which could be why I didn't enjoy it. Well, and if you think about it, if you're working that much and doing those runs, oh, your, yeah. poor, your poor adrenals were probably dying. And, well, and yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you probably weren't sleeping very well. Your hormones were probably out of whack. Yeah. No, it, like I said, it's like I almost, hearing him talk, I was almost like, I'm just slightly, <laughs> slightly intrigued to try it again. But I don't know. This is like, you know, 25, 30 years later, I may be a little different body. So. I was going to ask you, <laughs> the competitor in you, are you, are you wanting to try it? Nothing makes me want to do 100 miles. Nothing. There is no <laughs> part of, your husband would go do 100 miles. Does he want to do 100 miles? Absolutely. Yeah. He's probably dying. Oh, yeah. He was so excited when, because, you know, he's been on Joe Rogan before. And so he was like, oh my gosh. I'm like, well, what would you want me to ask him? Yeah, right. We should have asked him. He's like, I'm so dumbfounded. I don't even, I can't even think of a question. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. But the protein question is one that I just have been analyzing. So I love that he was like, yeah, I could see where that could work. And I was like, yeah, because it makes sense to me that we would want to go into depletion and then go into growth. That's how the human body was made. So why not use that to our advantage? And I just, in all my research, stumbled upon this incredible study. It was a human study showing every three hours, 20 grams of protein would stimulate muscle growth, mTOR, I thought, okay, what if we put that with fasting now? Mm-hmm. And then we just saw such great results. So I can't wait to send him the article. Yeah. I'm kind of curious to see what he thinks of it. What do you think too? I thought his input on ice baths and like what your purpose is with the ice bath. I thought that was interesting. Like that took mm. ice baths to a whole new yep. level of like what, like how you stacked your workouts and what you're trying to do and achieve. I thought that was interesting. And the, and the concept, I've heard this before, that the concept that acute inflammation, short periods of inflammation is actually helpful. And you don't want to kill that. So you want, because it's reparative. Mm-hmm. But it's the chronic inflammation that's the problem and is killing us. Right. Well, and so many people have chronic inflammation. Right. And don't even know it actually. Right. Yeah. So that was really interesting as well. And I think, I hope you guys heard this. He, I just get so much pushback from athletes that, especially the Spartan racers and, uh, and people who want to, then the long distance runners are like, no, no, I have to carb load. Carb load, carb yeah. Load. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I want to ask him, like, do you, it, I don't, I didn't hear him say carb, he carb loads ever. Yeah. He said occasionally like a little bit. And he said like 45 minutes into his run, he might have like five 
five grams. Right. Or something. But he leans on fat. It was but he leans on fat, yeah. Yeah. So he does like a fat bomb. And he'll do, he said like low carb the night before, potato yeah. and steak, but not yeah. like a bowl of spaghetti. Or, right. You know. And then wake up and have a muffin or, right. a, or a smoothie, have a right. smoothie or a bowl of fruit before you go. Right. So yeah, absolutely. Which is what we're all taught to do throughout. I remember like having big team dinners for sports, like spaghetti and garlic oh, yeah. bread and like right your volleyball <laughs> oh, this is for basketball oh <laughs> I don't think we did it much for volleyball but we probably did actually now that I think about it but yeah I'm like oh my gosh so backwards I could have such a better player <laughs> right I know well that's I, I mean I always say like my undergraduate degree was in exercise physiology and we learned none of this like this wasn't the ketogenic diet wasn't even on anybody's radar Everybody was in awe of Serena Williams and were like, oh my gosh, what is she doing box jumps for on it? She's a tennis player. Like, and I don't know if you know, I meant to ask him this. Do you know that the guy, I wish I could remember his name. He just won the US Open golf. And he, I only know him because my son follows him. And we, and so we were watching. He was ranked number 15 in the golf world. And I guess last year at the US Open, he, he did horribly. And so he decided... I'm I'm never going to suck that way again. And so over the last year, he start he went to the gym, and he started building muscle. And the guy they have like a picture of him in one year's time. He has so much muscle. He is so huge, and he just won the U.S. Open. And he says it's because he cross trained and he worked out. And as my son pointed out, he's like, golfing will never be the same now. Like everybody's going to now follow that same kind of regime and it's not going to be a sport where you don't cross train to that degree. Golfing's so interesting because it's like, I can understand the tennis, the volleyball, the basketball, football, like all the sports, but golf is so interesting to me because you just have to swing. <laughs> Yeah, but you know I, mean? I don't. But I think it's the power behind the swing, and I'm sure the golfers, if you're listening, Maybe, you're probably yeah, dying. Yeah. You're probably like, no, no. Well, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I fully admit it. According to my son, and I don't know all the terminology, but he, the droid, the way he could drive the ball, he can drive it longer, further than anybody. Interesting. So, yeah, because of the new muscle mass. Right. But it, it, it's the same thing for it. And this is what I really wanted to bring to everybody is like, just because he's talking about 100 miles doesn't mean we can't take those same principles and maximize our nutrition and use them with the fasting and ketogenic diet and diet variation. Like, it's so Absolutely. cool. I just love how all this knowledge is teaching us how to like hack into our own bodies and it doesn't like a cold plunge doesn't cost you any money. Fasting and then protein cycling isn't going to necessarily cost you more money. You're not talking like thousand dollar gadgets. You're talking right. about here's the way the body was designed. Do these things and you're going to notice your performance will be better. Right. Simple switches. Simple Lateral switches. changes. Yeah. yeah. It's so cool. That's so right. anyways, okay, this Dr. Stacy Sims, we got to get her on. Yeah, I, I already hear, wrote her name down. Okay. Yeah. I want to know what she has to say about women and hormones because I, I almost did ask him, I saw on Instagram that he, his wife runs with him. I couldn't Ugh. tell, I could right? I couldn't <laughs> tell how horrible. old he was. How old do you think he is? He's in his late 40s. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Because I want to know what, how his wife does. The one thing that I've noticed uh, going through menopause is when my estrogen 
is down. I can feel how dry my skin is and my joints feel dry. And they feel like they're more prone to injury because estrogen is a lubricant. And I'm like, I don't know if I'd... I I would want to time 100 miles around my estrogen production for sure. Can you imagine if that's what they had to do with women races? I, it would be okay. A the majority bit. of the of the <laughs> people competing win is what? Can you map your cycle out for us, and we'll plan the race. You got to show us the clue app before yeah, we let right. you in. <laughs> so, but I want to hear what this woman has to say because it's just like fasting. We have to time it around our hormones. Well, what about our workouts? Right. Yeah. No. You know, in yoga they do that. Actually, come to think of it, in yoga they say, you know, you're supposed to do more of a yin style yoga when you're on your cycle. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And you're not supposed to go upside down. You're not supposed to do any inversions when you're on your cycle because you're reversing blood flow. Oh, fascinating. I did not know any of that. Yep. Although it doesn't always, you're not always like wanting to go upside down when you're on your cycle. Like, let's think about how you're feeling. Right. But but that is interesting that there's some. But if you think about it, like there's so many things that we're learning now around fasting and keto and eating according to our cycle. So there should be exercise that gets varied along our cycle. So that's why I'm really curious to pick this woman's brain. Okay. But that was interesting. Okay, guys, let us know if you try, this is my task that I have for you. If you try the protein cycling technique where you fast during the week, you can do some autophagy fasting like Monday through Friday, I'm sorry, Monday through Thursday, protein cycle on Friday, do a tough workout on Saturday, protein cycle on Sunday, go back to autophagy Monday through Thursday. That has been the formula we're seeing work for building muscle. I did a few videos on YouTube on it. So all you got to do is type in protein cycling and you'll see it on my channel. So hope it helps. You put the whole foods in, you take all empty foods out, you put organic food in, and you shake bad toxins out. You eat ketobiotic and your microbiome shouts, that's what it's all about. You put fast cycling in, you take overeating out, you put the good fats in, trying seven fast types out. You download Carb Manager where your food is all graphed out. That's what it's all about. That's what resetting is all about.